Happy National Mental Health Awareness Month, everybody. This is Sylvia Brown doing my PSA to assist in bringing awareness to this topic. If you are experiencing any emotional distress that impairs you in your life, that affects relationships, work, school, your overall functioning, you can contact the Mental Health National Hotline at 866-903-3787. If you're experiencing a crisis, you can text BRAVE to the crisis hotline 741-741. If you are experiencing suicidal thoughts, you can contact National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at Hey everybody, how's it going? It's uh, Kevin here with Tyree. Say hi, Tyree. Hey, hey. And this is, uh, uh, before I forget, a podcast. Uh, today we have um, a very special guest, somebody I've known pretty much my entire life. Um, served uh, just over two decades in the United States Army. Uh, my uncle, Andrew Lucanet. Say hi, I'm Clandy. Hey, hey. Oh. Hey. <clears throat> Glad to be with you. Yeah. So, uh... <clears throat> But uh, t- tell us a little bit about uh, yourself. Uh, I got in the uh, Army when I was a uh, junior in high school. I was actually split trainee in the National Guard. My dad, who was a bombardier in World War II, uh, he got promoted up to captain and then reverted back to enlisted E6. When I got in the Guard, my junior in high school at 17, he was my first sergeant. He worked his way back up to E8, and I was his jeep driver and company clerk. Uh, That's we're... wild. Yeah, I did yeah. not know that. <laughs> yeah, uh, and then uh, my my scores were high enough that I could have went to OCS. My SATs were kind of screwy, so I uh, my dad actually took me up to. Uh, uh, prep school in northern New Jersey, try to get my SAT scores up, and I think he wanted me to go to West Point. But uh, I looked at that said four years, or I could go to OCS down at Fort Benning, Georgia, for uh, become a 90-day wonder. And back then, in 1982, you didn't have to have a four-year degree as a commissioned officer. So I went to basic in 80, between my junior and senior year of high school, after my senior year, I went to AIT. Uh, basic was at Fort Dix, New Jersey. It was still an active post. Uh, the uh, AIT was out of Fort Ben Harrison, Indiana. And then I went to OCS after my freshman year of college that summer, 82, at Fort Benning. What a wonderful place. Spending school for boys. <laughs> right. And then I, uh, 83, went to uh, Armor Officer Basic because there was not an aviation branch at that point. I was interested in flight school. So you had to get branch qualified. So I became an Armor Officer. Did that for a year. And then in 84, I started flight school down at Fort Rucker. 
and graduated in March of 85 as a pilot. So what was kind of neat was my dad retired completely out of the guard after over 40 years between active duty reserve guard. Uh, yeah, I think he had 40 years, six months and it was in the spring of 82. He actually pinned back on his captain's rank. I had to help him put his brass back on <laughs> since he's moved over from first sergeant. And he swore me in in 82 as a commissioned officer. So yeah, that was kind of nice. That's, yeah, that's awesome. awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And then in uh, 1988, I got promoted to, I was flying Hueys still from 84. I flew Hueys until uh, 2000. Uh, it was kind of funny in 96, I mean, in 88, when I got promoted to captain, my dad happened to be there. He made this smart-ass remark that uh, he wasn't going to salute me because he had time and grade. I had to I had to tell him and remind him, yeah, you were promoted in World War II, you knucklehead. <laughs> so, <laughs> And in uh, 96, when I got promoted to major, he happened to be there, too, and my mom. And I, I said, I won't make you salute me, Dad. So he didn't get to see me make lieutenant colonel in 2003. It passed in February of 01. But, uh, yeah, I retired lieutenant colonel. In 2000, I went to a Blackhawk transition, flew Alpha Model Blackhawks until my retirement in 06. Uh, I was a medevac commander because I was already a major and I needed some command time. So I got to do that. And I got to be a, uh, uh, battalion commander for an ATS battalion for about six months. And, and then I stood up the aviation brigade in Arkansas, uh, in 2002. And in 2003, when I saw the old battalion that I had been attached to in Arkansas, when I moved down there in 92, uh, in 2003, when they got deployed, they had an open space for an uh, aerospace manager. So I had been on a dozen warfighters out in Fort Lewis, Fort Hood, uh, Japan. Uh, I went to Japan twice and Korea once with uh, UFL, OG Focus Lens. And then Japan was Yamasakura. And uh, messed around and saw a lot of the digitization as it was coming up in the military, going for paper maps and all that wonderful stuff. Yeah, you're literally coming from the Cold War era. Yes, I had, when I helped rewrite, because I'm still working in, in, as a defense contractor down here at Fort Rucker, I've uh, been doing that since 2006. And, uh, I helped re rewrite the uh, curriculum for the Air Cav Leaders course. And it was kind of funny, the commandant at the time when he was writing this course with me, he said, look, I, I found some Soviet tanks that actually they, they snorkel across rivers. I said, yeah, I, I've seen that in 1983 when I went to Armour Officer Base. So, yeah. And, and dealing with the Russians back then and the Soviet Union, uh, we knew we were outnumbered by about five to one as far as on the side of the armor. 
But at the time, we were still firing 105s instead of 120s for the main gun. But we had the uh, fin-stabilized Sabos and it, and the rifled uh, rifling inside of our uh, main gun. And we actually didn't have fin-stabilized Sabos then, they were just regular Sabos. But the rifling actually made the rounds more accurate Mm-hmm. out of a further distance and as the russians as the uh, soviets would come in hopefully we could load and fire again cut that five to one uh, better, uh, you know advantage that they had down to about a one-to-one advantage by the time they came up to being equivalent with our abilities so it was whoever got the round in first for the last time. But, uh, yeah, some of the realities of the Cold War that we had to deal with. So, And that's one reason they came up with so many so the hellfires and all the other stuff. But uh, in 2002, I actually did my master's degree in computer resourcing information management, which helped me out when I went over and started working. Uh, a lot of people don't know, in 2003, the initial push into Iraq, 4th ID was up north, and uh, they were called the Digitized Division, but were part of 3 Corps. And what we did was, uh, when 3 Corps hit the ground, we modernized a lot of stuff. Uh, one of the things that was done was the... Uh, all the core aircraft uh, from the 185th guys, Mississippi Guard, that were assigned to core, uh, got Blue Force tracker in them. However, after about a month, we noticed a lot of the BFTs weren't being shown up on the maps because the hard drive cabling interfered with the HF radio, the high-frequency radio, so the pilots would rather turn them off. <laughs> Then let people know where they're at and just use a radio to communicate. So it made some interesting times around Iraq with uh, a lot of the dead zones and stuff. Let's, let's rewind that, um, it for a little. Oh, go ahead. Kevin. No, I was just going to say like from, from the time you came in to the, to the time you retired, I mean, you, I mean, you pretty much did see like the, the complete, what'd you call the digitization of the United States army. Uh, that's got to be kind of wild to, to see that that progression. I know from from when when Tyree and I came in, you know, there was you know we had technology right, but like what it is you know now compared to two thousand one two thousand two, it it's 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 leaps and bounds. I couldn't imagine going from you know what, you know how it was in the early eighties to. Uh, let me tell you, back in New Jersey, when I was in New Jersey Guard, my armor unit. We actually had M48A5 tanks, which were uh, Korean War versions. So they had, you had a coincidental rangefinder, which is basically a mirror on each side of the tank, and you know, overlap ghosts uh, in order to, as you reel in and out of the, the main gun as tank commander, try to line up the two images before you shoot it. And that. What I learned at Fort Knox in 83, though, I learned on an M60A3, 
we were using laser range finders and heck we had a in the 4885 we had an old no lie manual <laughs> uh round selection computer you actually had to pull out on a handle and it was like a looking at a uh, magic eight ball and a little cube inside there that bounces around they would bounce around inside the window as you move the handle to get the round that you want in there because what it does is automatically puts elevation on that main gun whether it's a saber round a heat round which stands for high explosive anti-tank or a hep round high explosive plastic because they all travel at different speeds so with the newer tank you just push a button you know with the new computers and stuff so it's uh since we've gone to a 120 and a smooth bore like the Russians have, but we've come up with a fin stabilized sabo, we can reach out and touch people a lot further. So I've stayed up on, on some of the armor stuff. My intentions were if my health ever went on me and I couldn't fly anymore, I would do that. So and speaking about my dad, I did get him up at a Healy twice, once in Arkansas, once in uh, and once in Delaware. Yeah, and uh, as a retiree, but I, I never got him up in a Blackhawk, unfortunately. So now, can I uh, back it up just for a second? Um, yes, sir. You had a long career. Uh, what was the feeling joining the military during the Cold War? Um, the height of it, really, uh, in history. I, I couldn't imagine thinking about joining the military right now with nuclear war, like on the brink of happening constantly now but uh-huh. back in the eighties, early eighties, you know, things were quite a bit different, but they weren't too much different from they are now what they are now. It's a, a U.S. versus Russia kind of thing going on. Uh, yeah. We're threat or they're threatening to use nuclear weapons. We're starting to get everyone with nuclear weapons together to try to get some, uh, I guess, assistance going. Um, what was the feeling way back then joining and how does it compare to now? Well, uh, the mop training was a little bit different because, uh, you were learning about nuclear situations and, uh, more worried about that than you were chemical warfare at the time. How, how, Uh, how confident were you in that, uh, in the training for nuclear decontamination? (laughs) Uh, pretty much knew that it was going to be useless. I mean, it's, uh, the reason they called it mad, mutually assured destruction <laughs> for short is because, you know, once those missiles were punched off, unlike today where we can intercept a lot of them, uh, it was bad scene, you know, so, and once you launched them out there, there was no recall on what was done was done and uh, I remember going through some of the uh, civil defense courses at school as well during the time so it it was a strange time like I said uh, you learned a whole lot of different tactics and that's one of the things that I've noticed uh, working down there at Fort Rucker helping with that ACLC, they were going back, starting to teach 
some of the Russian and Cold War tactics. And uh, a lot of the pilots, uh, seasoned vets from Afghanistan and Iraq, you know, you get a troops in contact and go out there and kill the target. Well, now we're trying to teach them how to be cav guys. And with the way that the, the big red horde rolls across, you can't go out there and engage the first ones you see because shortly thereafter you will see, you know, the advanced party and then the main body and all kinds of other stuff. So mm-hmm. one of the first classes we ran through there, the Apache guys went out there, saw the first uh, recon element, fired it up, and then they pretty much were smoked five minutes later. So you got to see, report, and bring heavier, you know, weapons or capability or other things on to the uh, target. Yeah, you so, don't fire off immediately sometimes. And if you yeah. have the uh, element of surprise, you got to utilize it. Yeah, and uh, I found it kind of interesting, especially in Iraq, because I had never heard the term kinetic versus non-kinetic action. And uh, we would just say, go out and kill them. <laughs> so, yeah, and the word changes and all the, the play and everything else, like I said, uh, over the years, yeah, it's been pretty interesting. And to watch... Uh, well, I'll give you an example here where I've been working at. When I first started working here in 2006, TRADOC made it a requirement all aviation brigades would go through Fort Rucker through what was called ATX, an aviation training exercise that I helped develop. We ran the first brigade size one back in 2006, and we continued on with that until 2010. And then we started rewriting some of the, the courses. I helped rewrite the flight ops, the cab course, and some other stuff. But the uh, the guys going through the courses here and our, our contractual agreement as a contractor was to give them paper maps. And one of the last exercises we ran, I remember my immediate boss, who was a old, uh, he's retired now, but he was a uh, Cobra pilot. And I was trying to figure out, you know, laser codes for designators and make sure that the pilot and the Apache has it. And like I said, they have to kind of link up because you don't have the the missile on a wire anymore. And uh, on top of that was uh, (laughs) we made up all these paper maps and myself and a guy who works with me who actually was on the initial push in Afghanistan, he flew for task force, said, you know, they're not going to use these. And my boss said, well, we've got to make them up. So we made them up, and we left them in our office across the street. <laughs> and at the end of the 10-day exercise, guess what? Nobody asked for them. <laughs> so I think they finally realized that, hey, digitization has, has come around. And, and nowadays... Like I said, with all the glass cockpits and stuff, I remember going out to an aircraft and uh, carrying a pub's bag and all your dash tin and everything else and all your flight gear. I mean, you must have carried 50 pounds of crap out to an aircraft just to go fly. Or nowadays, it's in the aircraft. You know? So you 
got your checklist there. You got what's called a multifunctional display. It's basically touch screen, and you can do everything you need there. Plus, it'll show your maps. It'll show it'll show you everything, so you don't have to carry all that junk the way we used to have to. So, I've seen that. Uh, what was it like uh, starting or learning to, to become a pilot? I mean, uh, <laughs> it, it, I'm sure I've at learned. some point you your father took you for a drive in a car. Uh, and and vice versa in the end, uh, you, you take your father for a flight in the helicopter. So that's pretty major. Uh, what was it like learning how to fly one of those enormous, expensive machines? I learned on what was called a TH-55, stands for a trainer helicopter. The civilian equivalent would be a uh, Hughes 300. And it's got... Eight fan belts that turn the main rotor blade. It's a reciprocating engine. Seats two people. And back then, when you soloed, which happened usually around 10 hours after flight time, and you can barely hover, I mean, you got this little aircraft, and they put you on a, you know, a 10 by 10 concrete pad. The IP, I'll tell you, He'll take you out the first time, and I'll tell you, okay, I'll show you how all the controls work. And got, got to remind you that these are Vietnam veteran guys. These are seasoned pilots, so they can fly the heck out of these things. But it had a manual throttle, which a lot of people don't. It's just like a motorcycle. And you had what was called George, which was an overspeed governor. And it would, if you hit that, hydraulics it would make you it would push back against you and actually bounce the aircraft so the nose would turn some about 10, 15 degrees. And <clears throat> the first time the pilot, the IP, takes you out, the instructor pilot, like I said, he'll show you some stuff, and then you get what's called your nickel ride, and he'll have you, and he'll say, okay, the pedals are the anti-torque, they work the tail rotor, and you go around to your left, around to your right, you know, spin in a circle, but depending on which one you push on. And then he'll have you take those pedals and do that. And then he says, okay, the next thing is the collective, which makes it go up and down. But on TH-55, as you're pulling up on the collective because you're putting more pitch in the blades, you actually got to turn the throttle at the same time to increase the power to the motor. So... <laughs> You're pulling up on that to go up and down as well as increasing the throttle and to back and forth and hopefully not hitting George. And then he'll say, okay, and I'll show you what the cyclic does. He'll have you take each of the controls one at a time, and he'll sit there with one finger and hover that sucker right over top of, you know, a postage stamp. Well, he gives it to you, and the next thing you know, you can barely keep that thing over a football field, let alone a 10 by 10 square. <laughs> wow. And then, uh, then he gives you all the controls. <laughs> so he that, sits there, that backs you up and, you know, tries to get you to calm down because you have a tendency to over control when it starts mm -hmm. pendulum or moving in one direction and stuff. So, and it was, it was kind of the same in a Huey. But with a Huey, because of the way the rotor system was, and so much 
mechanical linkage, you could actually put an input in and then take it back out before it would have a chance to affect the whole aircraft. So uh, it was kind of forgiving with the Black Hawk, with the fully articulated system. It's uh, it was a lot more responsive, and uh, but the TH fifty five that thing back then was about sixty thousand dollars a copy, and uh, <laughs> we flew out of Hanchi Airfield, literally a big orange blob over the, the skies. I'll have you know when when we stood back up the aviation branch when I was sitting there in flight school, we were graduating probably a hundred folks every two weeks, and uh, nowadays. A graduating class is like 30 or 40 every four weeks. So it's, uh, Fort Rucker was really hopping in the mid 80s. (laughs) But, uh, learning to hover, like I said, I, the TH 55 also, when you're doing an auto rotation and they roll the throttle off on you, uh, you got to level it out before you hit the runway because we used to do full touchdown autos, which they don't teach kids today, which is a shame. Uh, what, what is that exactly? Auto rotation when your engine quits. Okay. And you lower the collector rapidly. You nose the aircraft over a little bit. And what you're doing, because your, your rotor blade, your main rotor is your wings. Okay. Like in an airplane. And you don't want to lose your wings, otherwise you fall like a rock. So you kind of nose it over, and the airflow goes through, keeps driving the main rotor. As you get down to where you see you can uh, land, you then do what's called a rapid decel, which is you pull back on the cyclic, brings the nose up, the rotors are going to start spinning real slow. Usually you're about 55, I think about 15, 20 feet above the ground. And then when you get down to about 10, 5 feet, you're going to pull up on the collective because now the rotor blades are spinning real slow. And as you pull up on it, it's going to cushion the airflow as you land on the ground so you don't hit like you think you would. Uh, the uh, we got so good at them in Hueys that we used to try to put the the uh, one third marker on the runway out your door, so the limited amount of ground slide and everything else. So, but with the with the twin engine aircraft, which is all the Army has now, they don't teach a lot of this stuff. They'll teach you, you know, if you lose one engine. Yeah, you're not going to have the lift capability, and they'll teach you emergency procedural landing stuff, but you're never going to go into a full auto. Very rarely is it going to happen in a multi-engine aircraft. So, And uh, 89 to 90, I went to test pilot's course in a Fort Eustis for uh, Hueys and did that for a while, was on orders and stuff. Picked up some uh, guard bumming, as we called it. I did uh, three months back when I first got out of the course, our full-time test pilot uh, was at a fixed wing Q course. So they asked me if I wanted to come in on orders and we had problems with an N2 gearbox. They, uh, it was failing. 
and falling apart. So I, I said, sure. Went in and did three months of uh, duty there at Delaware, my armory, and flying a lot of test flights. Get my time up. So night vision goggles were kind of interesting. Yeah. Back then they were completely yeah. different, right? Like you just couldn't well, use a green fuzz. PBS fives, the original ground uh, MVGs that you had. Mm. Okay. Back then, the full face ones. That's what we used. Uh, people said you're nuts. Uh, the guys before me, actually, they would tune one monocle to look at the instruments, and the other one would be outside. Well, what they did was, when I got there, they had cut, flipped the, the goggles over, cut out what was now the top became the bottom so you could look underneath the goggles and see your instruments. And we had blue-green lighting inside the cockpit. So you didn't have to refocus that one monocle. So it helped out. Uh, but I had driven tanks, Jeeps, and everything else, APCs with, with ground goggles, and I said, you're crazy. You want me to do what? And uh, you get up above the trees with the ambient light because that's what drives those things. And it's really not that bad. You get to the point that you'd rather fly with goggles than flying unaided. So, especially if you're going into a tight LZ and stuff. But uh, so I learned on PBS fives. They were kind of fun because, like I said, the, the one piece fit underneath your visor. And then you had a, a surgical tube that went around your helmet, snapped to each side, and you had Velcro that came over the top to hold them in place. <laughs> and then you had That's a counterbalance. You, you had a counterbalance weight that you would put on the back of your helmet. A lot of us had Velcro bags with t- tire weights in them. You slap that on your the back of your helmet so your head doesn't get pulled down in front. Mm. So. Uh, that was how we flew with PVS fives, and then it was kind of weird because I went up to uh, Washington D.C. and on my way back, I was still in flight school. The guy saw my bag. I had my books with me. I'd done some studying and stuff while on the road, and he came up to me, takes me in the men's room, <laughs> and shows me his ID. He was a warrant officer. Back then, we didn't have W-5, so he's a W-4. And he's, he says, let's go uh, let's go into the handicap stall here. So I'm like, whoa, dude, I'm not like that, you know? Yeah, take it easy. <laughs> you haven't even bought me a drink yet. <laughs> we go in there, and he says, you ever hear of Ambus, which was the sixes? And I said, yeah, I've heard of them. I haven't seen them. He said, well, this is a second pair. And he pulled out the out of the case and he showed them to me and he said, all right, put them back in the case. He said, I'm going to give you a hand receipt. He says, you're going to turn them over to W4, da, 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 down at Fort Rucker. They're going to be doing testing down there. So I got to carry those from Washington to, to Rucker for testing on the sixes, which they would clip on your uh, visor and then you could actually flip them up out of the way, but they didn't have all that surgical tubing the counterbalance weight was actually the battery compartment so 
like I said, it was it was a giant leap forward, and they've gotten better since then. Even so, but your visual acuity—you know how you used to have a twenty-twenty vision. Once you put on goggles, it drops down to twenty forty. I don't care if you got twenty twenty or not. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's the best that we can get you at that point. So uh, hey, you, you would learn to turn your head and scan a lot more because you're. It's like looking through two toilet paper rolls. If you would hold them up over your eyes. Yeah. Yeah. We bad. Fun stuff, fun stuff. Death perception goes out the window. Yeah, it must have been really exciting. I mean, if, for oh, me yeah. anyway, oh. like just to see all that kind of stuff just coming because that's oh, a huge yeah. jump. Yeah. I mean, in such a short period of time, you guys are seeing huge jumps in technology. Uh, I mean, even now we're seeing huge, enormous jumps in technology with time. Uh, yeah. You're talking about the visors and all kind of stuff. I've seen insane things with F. 22s and things like that but it, I, i'm so just like saying the, go ahead like heads up displays and, and and what is it that the um the apache has like wherever the pilot looks the gun looks or something yeah yeah <laughs> yeah with the uh yeah their gunner's helmet is really high speed high tech and it's even got uh you know some of the, the graphics and imagery that they show you in, in doctrine classes they can portray it up on that screen and like i said they they can look at a lot of stuff that we couldn't do with a, with goggles because uh, their sighting systems are so much better. So uh, comparing comparing pilots from from when from when you were doing it to to now, like who's the better pilot? All right, uh, don't want to talk bad on my podcast, but <laughs> because of the digitization and so much. I mean, you're talking about uh, damn near, you know, you're getting up to the point of overload. Uh, even even now with the Apaches and the Cav course, because instead of having a 58 out there, you have two Apaches and a UAS. And mm-hmm. the pilots actually have the ability to overload ride that ground controller and take control of that UAS. Not only the, the lasers and the optics on it uh, to be able to do hellfire handoffs and stuff, but also to be able to uh, fly it. But uh, you're getting, you're pushing, you know, overload on the pilots at this point. They have become with a lot of the digitization and stuff, and it's, it's good and it's bad because it, it teaches them better cockpit management skills and they can manage your systems a lot better. Uh, they have more tools available. However, the aircraft breaks. It's not a well-known fact, but if, if I'll, I'll flash back to my Huey days. Uh, if you got in a, in a, emergency situation would you rather have a test pilot or an instructor pilot somebody who has like you know yeah. many hours uh, yeah. sure <laughs> which one would you want an yeah. instructor pilot 
Oh, no, I would want the test pilot personally. Yeah, the, the test pilots, believe it or not, because of the analytics that they teach us and stuff. Yeah, you guys have actually, seen some they, wild... They survive more on crashes than, than in, instructor pilots. Yeah. Now, instructor pilots will get upset about that fact, but it's a true fact. Yeah, uh, that makes perfect sense. And, and the same thing happens now with the younger pilots is because they have become such a cockpit manager. Now all your aircraft have autopilot, uh, you know, we had, and we used to laugh about it, and they used to, when I went through the transition in 2000, the instructors used to say, well, Igor Sikorsky loved you so much, he gave you almost an autopilot. He gave you this little arrow on your compass to follow, keeping, you know, bounds of this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. That was it. We didn't have a lot of the stuff. Now they, you know, you push a button, even with Apaches, they can hover hold, they can hover hold, nose up, nose down. Uh, they can, uh, you know, maintain their altitudes, a lot of autopilot stuff. Uh, the 72, which is now the trainer that the guy's going to, uh, the Lakota, uh, is dual engine. And once again, touch screens. Uh, multifunctional displays. And what's really good about that is when they get out of flight school, they can actually land a civilian job where I, I couldn't do it for the last, for the first uh, well, six months or a year until I built about 500 hours up because uh, they understand the systems that are in there. And a lot of medevacs uh, around the country use basically the civilian version of 72. So, and it's easier for them to transition oh, yeah. from, that, from that aircraft because of all the digitization and all the technology into a 60 mic model with the glass cockpit or the, or the 64 or 47, uh, F model 47. So it's good that way. But like I said, it has some drawbacks. Uh, I had a, a guy in Arkansas guard that was a uh, test pilot and I was the airfield uh, safety officer when I came back from Iraq before I fully retired for a year. And <clears throat> he would get tired of having, you know, just another, because you had to have two pilots. When I used to do test flights, it was just me. I'd have a technician sitting in the other seat and enlist a guy <laughs> who wasn't a pilot, but in the Blackhawk, you could have two pilots and, uh, Whenever he said he needed a pilot, I volunteered because I knew I was going to go out and do an actual auto. It might not be to the ground, but I was going to. He was going to pull both engines off, and I was going to see how you know a block a Blackhawk would actually fall. And that's uh, crazy because uh, I would not <laughs> even want to even get anywhere near something like that. Like you're looking oh, forward with, to the ride on a helicopter with no engine on. Well, we plummeting to, do to the earth. Called- we used to do what's called teak checks or topping checks and uh, in a Huey. It's basically you're pulling in max power and you're climbing and it usually occurs around nine, ten thousand feet. You'll see a little drop in the N1. And basically what it is is the inlet guide vanes have opened up as much and you're not getting any more oxygen in there to help burn the fuel. So you'll see it droop a little bit. 
and you're trying to flame out the engine, but you're not, you don't want it. You just want to see the droop and then you come back down. You, you don't want to actually flame it out. Mm-hmm. So you get real close. So, but it, there's reasons why you do that as far as, you know, rating the engines and stuff like that. So it's, uh, then you yeah, call that a cheap yeah. check. That sounds like a underwear check. You need to <laughs> shit your pants dealing with that stuff. That is insane. <laughs> I had a guy when I was doing the N2 stuff. It was a, it was a overcast day, and Delaware there, and we're heading out of Wilmington, heading south toward Dover. And one of the checks was an RPM on, on a uh, Huey is 6600 RPM, and you beef it back to 64. Okay, you got what's called an inker dinker switch on the collective, and you beef it back, then you pull in a certain amount of torque, and it puts you in an automatic climb. So the technician sitting next to you, though, he's he's got a bunch of sensors and stuff hooked up to the engine. He's got this box in front of him, and he's pushing different buttons, and he's getting these readings. He's writing them down as you're you're holding this uh, all the the parameters that are needed to get this. And uh, I was with a guy one time, and I went and uh, we were, like I said, it was overcast. We started to climb, and we got real close to the clouds. He said to me, he says, sir, we're getting kind of close to the uh, to the, uh, the ceiling here. I think we better go down. And I tried to push down the collective, and it didn't move. And I looked over on his side, and I said, you got anything underneath the collective there? It's not nothing. Why? I said, well, this might get a little flaky because he got that much <laughs> angle of attack in the blades with the collective pulled up like that. He can't roll the throttle off because the blades will stop turning. <laughs> so we're about ready to punch into the clouds and start crawling Baltimore or Philadelphia for some help. When I jammed it down uh, we landed at and there was a canal down in southern delaware there and we landed right outside of that we had an lc there i got out looked at it what it was was the i had done the pre-flight on the aircraft inside the hangar because the weather was so crappy and apparently when somebody closed up the engine cowling after i looked at it had grabbed the wire harness, bent it. I mean, it's that flexible. And the rivet head was hitting the control, the collective control lever, which is coming up through the, what they call the deck there. So that's a little rivet head. And it actually scarred the rivet head when we looked at it down there. But then I reached up, bent it back out of the way said, okay, we're good. We're going to go head back to Wilmington. We'll try the next aircraft. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> had him replace the rivet. <laughs> no other problems. It's so, wild that something like that could just cause, could yeah. cause, <clears throat> cause the bird so many problems. Well, in 95, I had a uh, still flying Hueys. I was down in Arkansas Guard, and I moved down there in 92. And Went in to fly because I was getting close to your, you have to keep currency. It's the same as active duty. We didn't get the same amount of pay. It was all prorated, but we had the same flight hour requirements. Hmm. So 
I went out and uh, one of the guys who just come back to test pilot's course said, you know, I'm doing a test flight. You want to jump in? I said, yeah, I'll be your sandbag. What the hell? So the technician jumped to the back. I jumped up front. And we, he said, okay. He said, I already did an auto rotation check. He says, uh, it was good. He says, we're going to do hydraulics off. He said, do you remember how to do that? And I said, man, it's been a couple of years. Let's review it. So we went through the steps. I said, okay. So the first step is uh, the co-pilot, which is the position I was in. I identified the hydraulic switch. He's got the controls. He says, go ahead and turn it off. Turn off the hydraulics. He does some tests with the cyclic, pushing in different quadrants, moving the collective a little bit up and down the pedals. And then when he's done, he says, all right, I identify the hydraulic switch, turn it back on. Well, when that hydraulics kicks in, <clears throat> you can get what's called, and it could have happened in the other direction, but hard over which is where one of the valves either fails or gets dirt in it or something, and it forces hydraulic fluid to the weakest quadrant. Okay. And therefore, it will jam that control to that whatever location. Uh, could be the cyclic, could go to the one of the four corners, or it could be the collective as far as going up or down or, or the pedals even. Uh, motoring in or out. So it's all linked together. Well, they, a little rock called us and said, you have a civilian airliner in off left side. So I kind of twisted my head. I took my hand about three inches off the, off the uh, hydraulic switch, identified the traffic. And as I did, the guy that I was flying with said some nice ex Explanatory. Uh, <laughs> he said, "Oh crap, we'll go with that." And uh, I, uh, he said, "Collective heart over." So as I turned and looked at my instrument panel, I could see my attitude indicator. We were about eight degrees nose high. Reached over, grabbed the hydraulics, threw it to the off position, which basically takes it out of the loop. Then. Uh, and he, I got backed him up on the cyclic and helped level the aircraft back out. And he said, well, let me tell you the max torque on a, on a Huey on a, on a normal day or, uh, optimum day would be about 50 pounds of torque. He looked at me, he said, man, he said, did you see the torque meter? Well, torque meter is over on the pilot side. I said, no, man, <laughs> I didn't look over there. He goes, well, I saw it coming back down through 60. <laughs> and one of the worst things, like I said, when you're doing an auto rotation or anything flying, is to get blue blades. One blue left, one blue right. <laughs> so we didn't get blue blades, and he was kind of freaking out a little bit. And I said, we're still flying. We're all good. You know, that big round ball of dirt's not coming at us too fast. Yeah. We're in control. Mm -hmm. I said, uh, then he says, as, as we turn downwind to try to, we had to actually do a, a, a run on landing, you know, it's where you slide down the runway, 
don't do that with Blackhawks now because it's got wheels, all the other aircraft. But we had skids, so it's neat. You get sparks and stuff flying out of there. But anyway, wait, you guys are dragging dragging the aircraft on on. <laughs> Pretty much so. You do a low and you're shooting off sparks because you don't want to make a lot of rapid inputs. And and if it is like a piece of dirt or something, and jar that free, and now you can you know enhance the problem. So yeah. <laughs> we get on on. As we're turning on to, to final, he says, oh, crap. I said, what? He goes, my pedals aren't working. I'm thinking, oh, great. Now we've got a stuck pedal. And I said, are you sure? Because the hydraulics is off. And he messed with a little bit more. He goes, oh, yeah, they're just kind of sloppy. I said, yeah, we're fine. So we did our run on landing. And, uh, and I had a little fire engine follow us down the runway. They get us out. Immediately take us over to the medical clinic there, troop medical clinic, TMC, and get to pee in a cup. And uh, then you got to wait for the results. So it took about a week. And then you had to go talk to the flight surgeon, tell him you're still okay to fly. And I remember this guy, he's an old colonel, Doc Leonard. I'll use his name because he was funny. But old Doc says, uh, I went in to talk to him. He says, well, Andy, anybody tell you uh, what happened? I says, well, I said, other than the uh, over-torque, you know, I said, he goes, yeah, he says, they basically have to replace an engine. They tell you about that? I said, yeah, it's about a hundred grand. And he says, <laughs> anybody tell you how you're going to pay for it? What? And I, I put my wings off. My Velcro name tag, and I threw it at him across the desk and said, You can keep this crap. That, <laughs> that aircraft tried to kill me yesterday, you know, or last week. And he just said, No, nah, no, nah, you're good. I just want to make sure your attitude's so good. So, it's <laughs> a hell of a joke. Yeah, no shit. That's uh, awesome. So, but yeah, back, going back to Iraq, uh, let me tell you about a story I had over there. Being a helicopter pilot in C-3 air section, where the majority of them are Air Force guys. I had five Air Force, four lieutenant colonels, I'm all full, one full colonel that I traveled around a lot with. Uh, we get a request from MNFI, the Multinational Forces Iraq, folks down at the CPA down there. Town, they uh, the Ministry of Agriculture wants to do crop dusting. So, this colonel says, What do you know about crop dusting, Andy? I said, Sir, just because I'm from Arkansas doesn't mean (laughs) I'm a a good old boy and know what the hell crop dusting is. The second he said agriculture, he looked right at you, like, (laughs) Yeah, he did. Well, what happened was, uh, the dubus bug, which kills the date palms, uh, was doing some devastation on their, their plants. And they couldn't fly anything because we were now in their country. So what the Iraqis wanted to do, they had MI-2s. And, you know, this Russian-made helicopter. Mm-hmm. And uh, these were actually manufactured out of, out of Poland. And went uptown to talk to them the first time. And they said, well, one of the Fulberg colonels that was trying to get this thing off the ground, 
MNFI headquarters, says to me, he wasn't a pilot. He said to me, he, said, he worked for civil affairs. Uh, they want to use this uh, MI2 to, to spray for the dubus bug over the date palms. And by the way, two out of the three chemicals they use are FDA approved. Sweet. Of not. Yeah. So I was like, okay. First thing that went through my head was Agent Orange. Yeah, yeah. I was just thinking that. Okay. Yeah. Same. I had a lot of a lot of friends, including co-workers here. One of them just passed away, Dave Swank. And he'd been fighting Agent Orange for a long time. Yeah. Captain of Vietnam and stuff. Well, anyway, <clears throat> the first thing I did was sit down and write a 10-page issue paper on why we shouldn't do this. Oh, yeah. Get it on paper, right? <laughs> My boss, who was a full colonel, he retired a lieutenant general, a very sharp man. He narrowed it down to about two and a half pages, and we were still <laughs> under CJTS 7 at the time. So he went up to town, green zone, to brief up General Sanchez. And I hung around the Haji Mart down there in the green zone. And uh, about two hours later, he came out. I said, what did he say? He said, all valid points make it happen. Some of the points, other points I put in there was, you know, not only spraying our troops, but smashing an aircraft into a headquarters or this or that and some other stuff. And... I said, great. So I go back and I talk to the poor chemical officer. And he starts researching the chemicals that they want to use. Talk to the core surgeon about what can be done to help if anything does accidentally happen. Uh, as the lead airspace guy for core, I had to talk to the CAOC, the uh, Combined Air Operations Center down in Cutter, about clearing out the airspace. I had to take photos of the MI2s to send it to them because we had a we had an F-16 or CAS overhead the whole time this kid was flying it. Uh, plus, as a matter of fact, it was in First Ideas Sector where we did most of the stuff around Bakuba. And uh, <clears throat> the uh, we went and the first thing I did found out the chief pilot's name was Mustafa and he had been arrested like three or four times trying to cannibalize MI2s. Hmm. So I said, all right, the first thing I had to do is get you a new letter because we still had the, the uh, fourth ID commander's signature on that stuff. I said, hell, they're not even here now. So we got him a new one from headquarters. And then they said, well, we're going to go and uh, he, he gave me a list of 10 airports he wanted to go look at, see if he could salvage parts where he knew there were some aircraft, and then consolidate them. Well, they wanted to consolidate them. There's a little place called Kaniban Saad, which is just north of, of Baghdad. And they had, then at the time, it was called the Iraqi Civil Defense Corps, the ICDC. Uh, I guess that name came about like the World War II with the Japanese Defense Forces and everything else. They weren't supposed to be on an offensive ability. But the ICDC was handed the responsibility to 
secure county bond size. And he managed to get about a dozen aircraft pulled in there. And he got two of them ready to do test flights on. And he emailed me on my Yahoo email because he, he didn't have super and stuff. And he says, sir, this is what I want to do. I said, okay. So then we get a, I got a notification. There were some bad guys operating around Connie Bonsad. And then on top of that, with Abu Ghraib and everything that was going on, that there was going to be a assault on Abu Ghraib initiated by an aircraft smashing into the outer wall. It coincided with the day that Mustafa wanted to do a, a test flight. Of wow. course, of course. I, and I said, "Well, just hold off a second. I went in and talked to my boss, Colonel, Air Force guy. He said, "Well, why is County Bonsai?" So well, that's where our aircraft is. And he said, "Well," and then I told him about the Abu Ghraib, and he goes, "Oh," he says, "Let me guess." Your guy has the only flyable Iraqi aircraft. I said, yes, sir. <laughs> and he wants to do test flights. <laughs> so, uh, first thing we had to do before I gave permission to do test flights was to secure the aircraft so that it wouldn't be used in that way. So I called first IDs, G3 Air, and got a warrant officer who wasn't really happy about working for, course, uh, for division staff. I guess he... I don't know, he might have had a medical reason or something why he wasn't flying anymore, but he wasn't real happy when I talked to him. And he was an older guy. And I said, look, here's the situation we got. And he immediately cuts me off and says, oh, you want me to make that aircraft non-flyable? I said, whoa, 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 don't go out there and chunk grenades in these aircraft. I said, Mustafa, I've been working for four weeks on these things. I said, don't do that. I said, what I wanted you to do is have your security guys go out and do a survey, a safe survey of Connie Bonsad. Let me know how the ICDC is going. Well, about two hours later, he called me and said, they're all screwed up, sir. Oh, yeah. That yeah. They're non-existent. They aren't there. And uh, I said, all right, well, we've got to secure at least the two that are flyable that he wants to test fly. I said, I'm not going to task you guys right now to send up a, a company up there to try to secure that airport. I said, because I don't think that's reasonable. I said, but you go sit down with your people and see if you can come up with an idea. So about an hour later, he called me back and said, we're going to ground handle them up to Bakuba. So they did. He had Mustafa had about 12 guys that were vetted and, they were loud on Bakuba, and that's basically where they flew out of. They did a good job. The young lieutenant that was a 58 pilot, uh, I think he made it on the cover of uh, Stars and Stripes or Army Times or something with this situation because uh, they got a lot of press. They got a lot of good, good news. It was a good news thing. But if you had told me 20 years earlier in 1984, hey, you're going to be involved with crop dusting <laughs> <laughs> in a combat right. zone. I would have said you're smoking crack, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
uh, yeah, when, you, when you started when you started talking about it, that was my that was my first thought was the whole Agent Orange thing. It's like, oh great, yep. another way that they're trying to you know kill us off in forty years. Well, I had to uproot the kid was a twenty three year old that was flying it, and let me tell you, because we went up there just to watch him fly one day, myself, Colonel, and I got photos of Mustafa and us. This kid takes me over to show me the aircraft. He's all proud of it. And he's got a crocheted seat cover his grandma made for him. Nice. <laughs> I don't think it was fireproof, but I don't yeah. got to say anything. I just oh, that's nice. And the Air Force colonel goes, you think I could get some time in that, Andy? I said, no, nah, you don't want to get that. Big. <laughs> <laughs> Take it from an old Huey test pilot. Don't want to get it that thing. Because yeah. I found out later on that the last time these things – these aircraft were actually given an FAA-type uh, checkout was before Desert Storm. Good Lord. <laughs> so, yeah, these things had not been, because in, in helicopters, you have certain inspections that come due at certain times. They tear the aircraft apart, literally everything, and they'll put, you know, Illumination dye on it, all x ray stuff, you know, to make sure there's no internal cracks and everything else before they put it back together. I mean, aircraft might be down for two weeks to a month as they go through all that stuff, but it, you know, it just helps us from having straight people off the sidewalk. Yeah, right. And those You're aircraft 15 years hadn't had anything done like that for, you know. Since 1990 or 1989, yeah, and I'm like, like 15 years, yeah, that's insane. Yeah, I was like, man, that's crazy. So, uh, but yeah, it went over good <laughs> and uh, got a lot of good press. So, when I first, first, I, I worked plans for the first six months in Iraq, and then I worked in the joint operations cell as the officer in charge of C3 air and handled all the air mission requests and stuff that came across the desk as well as put out a lot of the fires and more, uh, current operations when I worked in the jock. But, uh, when I worked in plans, I got involved with a lot of weird stuff like crop dusting, uh, Jalen's first time that was deployed, which is the, little aerostats. I have all the sensors and everything on it. I had to get the airspace cleared for that. And the uh, help get Erbil opened up for the the rocks, the Koreans that were going in there. I had to go up there with my uh, AMLO there. And the uh, air mobility officer, he's an Air Force major. We had to go up there. And uh, the chaos was more concerned about the amount of foam that the truck put out and stuff rather than, you know, feasibility of landing on this area right. that they weren't planned. I mean, it was just, I could see that they were dealing with, and God bless it, a lot of air guard guys. I think all the C 130s are air guard guys, except for the, the base and Little Rock that trains them. They thought that they should be having the same requirements as a civilian airport back here. And at Little Rock, they have a place called All-American Drop Zone where they actually teach them a lot of the 
the tactical landings as dirt run way out there at the northern part of Camp Robinson. And I just couldn't believe that they were trying to back out of some of the stuff that they were taught. And uh, <clears throat> and it's just amazing. I'll get another incident I ran into <laughs> was and the Air Force Colonel that I worked with, the one that retired Lieutenant General. He put his career on the line when I told him about this. Uh, one of the first plans meetings I went to, the outgoing C-3 Air uh, plans guy for 5th Corps. We're standing in there, and they start talking about a guy named Sodder. And I'm like, who is this guy, Sodder? And he said, ah, he's just a cleric. He's got about two, three hundred people that follow him and steps out of line, we're going to take him out. I said, yeah, okay. So, that was in January of 04. If y'all remember April of 04, I think it was uh, Easter weekend, the spring uprising, as it was later called, uh, we realized, core realized, we had drawn down way too fast between the original push and OIF-2. Uh, give you an example. The original push had 82nd and 101st. They had over 800 rotary wing aircraft. When we showed up 3 Corps in 04, we barely had over 400. So uh, the problem was we didn't have a reserve. And they realized that real fast as they were trying to put fires out down there. And what it was, it was really shameful because the Spanish were trying to pull out right after their subway got bombed and stuff. And they made a decision they were going to pull out of the coalition. Well, then they're the ones who they attacked down there, the CPA down on Jeff. And uh, Insider ended up going into the mosque. And core gets permission, we turn 1st Armored Division's uh, Aviation Brigade around at the port, Kuwait. They already shrank wrapped a lot of their aircraft. We brought them back up to uh, work out of Al-Kut, which is uh, east of uh, Najaf. And couldn't get them resupplied. And the other guys that were down there, I think first I do send some folks down there. I know the Cavs and some other aircraft down there. But the Dermot Ford, Director of Mobility Forces, and I don't know who he was down at Cutter, but one of his staff members said, we don't want to land at Alcoot because the air traffic controllers work in the airport are Polish and they don't have a pink card. A pink card is an FAA certification. You're dealing with tactical controllers. The only reason a lot of the guys in the guard have pink cards is because they do it on the civilian side. Okay. Otherwise the army doesn't make it a requirement to get FAA certified. So, I called out to Washington Halipad out there at uh, downtown CPA. Uh, some guys from Vermont Guard that were aligned with our battalion. 
And I said, do you have your, I asked the tower chief, I said, you got your tack tower ready to go, which is a Hummer and a trailer on it with a buttload of radios and stuff. And he said, yeah, it's over in a warehouse. We'll do some preventive maintenance checks on it and we'll make sure it's ready to go. And I said, well, just be prepared. I'm going to have to put you on a 47 and take you down to Al Coop. Well, I got that rolling. He called me back a couple hours later, so they were ready. And I said, well, the colonel talked to Dermob 4, and he told them down there, you don't want <laughs> because we were we were landing C-23s, which are the boxcars, uh, and landing, uh, burning up my Chinooks, uh, trying to resupply those guys. But I needed C-130s. And like I said, Dermot Four wouldn't land with the Polish down there. So the colonel I worked for said, and I heard him say, you tell your boss, not you, to write a letter that he does not trust our coalition brethren <laughs> and put his name on the line, get it up here to me in 24 hours, and uh, we'll run a contingency plan that Colonel Lee thinks are working on. And about four hours later, we get a call back. Jeremiah Four signed a waiver. You're going to get two in there every two weeks. <laughs> I was impressed with this Air Force colonel. I was like, oh, holy cow. Because I, I already knew I was going to retire, you know, within a year when I came back from Iraq, a year or two. And I uh, to watch this guy who was active duty Air Force lay his, you know, I was like, ooh, man, that's some guts there. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so we started getting them resupplied. And, I, like I said, the politics of war, it's just – unbelievable some of the hoops you got to jump through and some of the stuff you see going on at that level that people don't realize you know yeah i mean i, I know we definitely didn't see anything where we were you know what i mean uh, well we tried to you know i always kept in mind just like flying i wouldn't ask these pilots to do anything i wouldn't step in an aircraft and do and when i used to get those air mission requests like I said, you're dealing with a lieutenant colonel who's on his, you know, looking at his retirement. You aren't dealing with some young major who's trying to get promoted in active duty, you know. <laughs> I just look at him and go, you're freaking nuts, man. <laughs> Here's the problem with your plan. And I lay it out for him. And we drive on. And uh, like I said, I, I took a lot of smoke for the one, 185th boys up there. But at the same time, I got the respect of Corps staff. Even the chief of staff uh, for Corps tried to extend me before I left out. Yeah. And uh, he thought I was an individual augmentee. I said, no, I'm actually here with a battalion from the guard. So they're going home. I'm going home. Yeah. So, <laughs> Get me out of here. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's, you know, and that's kind of a good point, right? Like when, when you're – that's – one of the things that I, I I don't necessarily agree with in the military is when you have those individuals who are looking at the next rank in the next five to 10 years, still being in the military, how much of a yes man they'll be, um, yeah, exactly. how much they'll, they'll uh, disregard the troops or the overall mission for what looks good on paper. 
And then here you are, you know, Lieutenant Colonel looking at retirement being like, mm, yeah, no, that's dumb. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you must have been a pain in the ass to deal with for some of these dudes. I, I was, I was. And, you know, I had a flight, flight ops girl come out of AIT and I'm back in Delaware and all the pilots are coming in and, and bugging her. And I remind you, I was an ops officer for four years, company ops officer under two different commanders. But, uh, <laughs> she was getting a little frustrated at the pilots. They're coming up there. They're screaming for their logbooks and keys, wanting to hand in the flight plans and risk assessments and everything. And she's getting a little overwhelmed. So I called her in the, the back office. I left the other two flight out specialists out there handling. I looked at her. I said, you're all right. She's like, well, sir, there's a lot of pressure in this, that, the other thing. I said, look, I said, you need to realize, because you're just starting out at this. Pilots are assholes. <laughs> and she looked at me and goes, but Captain, you're a pilot. I said, yeah, but I know I'm an asshole. <laughs> Pilots, and I hate to say it because I am one, but a lot of them, you know, they're all got that uh, alpha mode and they're all mm-hmm. prima donnas, you know, yeah. and, and think that they're better than everybody. When I, when I took command of medevac unit, it was kind of interesting because I had four lieutenants down here in flight school when I was going through the transition. Transition was about six weeks long. So I took them on dinner and stuff. Well, when they got back to Arkansas, I sat and called them in, sat them down, gave them the little paper that we had to write the CGSC, my command philosophy, and uh, which something that hit me at OCS was Schofield's definition of discipline. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, – that was what I based a lot of my behavior on. And uh, they came in and I said, all right, guys. I said, I'm going to give you the same talk or two that a Colonel Stewart gave me in Delaware when I came back from flight school. Are you a commissioned officer who happens to be a pilot? Are you a pilot who happens to be a commissioned officer? Because if you want to fly, tell me right now, put your bars on the desk. I'll get you reverted to a warrant officer. And I worked too hard for my commissioning, going through OCS down in Benny. Mm. I said, nope, I'm staying a commissioned officer. I'm a commissioned officer first. I take care of my men. And because you'll run into a lot of guys, my duties, bad place. They get the, a lot of the young pilots, you know, they go in there, especially the hard bars, they go in there and just, want to fly, 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 and not really pick up the responsibilities and stuff. Well, I gave the same talk to my lieutenants when they came in. And I said, I said, you need to realize that you're not better than anybody else. You happen to have 20-20 vision. I can teach a monkey to fly. It's repetition. <laughs> I said, so don't go out here and think you're something special. Go out here and take care of business and be human about it. Well, <laughs> one of them was kind of walking out. He has his head down. I said, you all right? He goes, well, I felt I was kind of special when I walked in. Now on the way out, I feel like crap. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, good. I knocked you down a couple of pigs. That's good. You'll learn. Yeah, and since I've retired, like I said, working out here for a rucker, a lot of the guys I know that I've run into and dealt with, 
they swear I was a warrant officer. <laughs> That's my attitude and stuff. Yeah. I had one commander tell me on an OER officer evaluation report, Andy has his own style of tact. Didn't say if it was good or bad. <laughs> I always enjoyed that comment. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty good but, one. But, uh, yeah, uh, that same lieutenant had an accident. One of my Blackhawks, one of my senior IPs, uh, they went out. The IP was a former Vietnam vet. Landed in an LZ unaided when they were supposed to be wearing goggles if they were going to go into this LZ. It was limited. And struck a tree. Knocked about 10 inches off of two of the blades out of four. If that wasn't bad enough, they continued on and went to Conway, Arkansas, also 30 miles away. When they were sitting there at the runway, the older pilot, the IP, said, man, I feel some feedback coming in. Crew gets out, takes his flashlight out, looks, sure stuff. He sees this blade kind of chewed up and slinging. Rather man, than shut crazy. it down, they fly it 30 miles back to Little Rock. So I end up having to deal with that kind of chewed their butts but that same lieutenant same one who said i felt i kicked him down a few notches uh one of my other lieutenants who he always said he was the oldest lieutenant in the arkansas guard he uh he had an ip in his platoon that In 99, we started getting the Blackhawk aircraft. So in 2000, when I took command, it was hard to get an aircraft for all the guys that we get, you know, through transition and stuff because the maintenance hadn't caught up with us yet. Well, fortunately, we had an an aircraft for the Frankie, uh, for Lieutenant's platoon, Nick Frankie. I'll tell you his name. Nick was the oldest lieutenant in the guard. He did Desert Storm as a, as an infantryman, as enlisted. But his IP was supposed to fly a guy who, during their table talk, blew a lot of his oral, so the IP made a decision not to fly the aircraft. Never told the lieutenant about it and let that aircraft sit on the ground all weekend. So Nick got upset, as he knew I would, (laughs) and wrote a counseling statement to his IP. The other lieutenant, after drill, says to him, man, I wouldn't have done that. That guy could crush your whole career. And as soon as I heard that, I called him aside. I said, lieutenant. And I found out about a week later, he transferred to the Missouri Guard. I said, lieutenant. I said, you know, you graduated number one in your class. You were an honor grad. And something other you fly the shit out of that craft. But at this point in time, you're a crappy leader and a lieutenant. I said, you do not, do not need to bow down to an IP or anybody else just because they have more experience when they do something like that. I said, Nick is completely correct. That aircraft could have been utilized by somebody else. And that IP let it go to waste. I said, that, you know, that is unsat. I said, no, I stand before, 
you stuck behind him on the council and all that IP. And uh, that kid didn't talk to me for about four years. <laughs> he transferred to Missouri, never heard from him. And then he came through one of our ATXs down here. He was a major and get ready to come up for Lieutenant Colonel. He took me aside. He said, you know, I was pissed off at you about that. I said, yeah. He said, best advice you ever gave me. So uh, I've impacted a few guys that way. Uh, and, uh, even starting when I was 19, shit. I was a second lieutenant, armor, had an E6. We used to have mandatory Wednesday night training meetings. You go in there for three or four hours, you wouldn't get paid anything. Just try to get ready for drill or after drill, talking about the AARs. And him being one of my tank commanders in my platoon, he was not very participating. My platoon sergeant, my first drill, first drill, my platoon sergeant told me, well, I'm going to give this guy counseling. He says, you want to sit in on it? I looked at him and I said, sure. And I had run into this E-Sex, and we used to do an in-ranks inspection every Saturday morning before we started drill. And I told him before we got into formation, when I went through in-ranks, I had to tell him a second time to roll his sleeves like this. Here it was September. And then in the office, when my platoon sergeant was chewing his butt, he still had his sleeves down. So I went over to him uh, after my platoon started and said, do you have anything you want to add, sir? Just out of respect, you know, this 19, soon to be 20-year-old kid, he's not going to say anything. I said, yeah, a matter of fact, I do. <laughs> and I stood up, and I walked over to the C6. I stood in front of him, and I said, Sergeant, I said, told you twice before. I said, this is the third time. I said, you need to roll them sleeves up. I said, you need to get your uniform together because it looks all sloppy. It looks like you slept in it. I said, well, lastly, you need to put some polish on them boots because they were they were tore up. This is when we used to have the black boots and stuff. Mm-hmm. And he says, he immediately snaps at me and says, sir, you're not an OCS anymore. Because word had made it around that I was a federal grad, not a, not a state graduate from OCS. And... <laughs> He said, I don't have to spit shine my boots. And I locked his heels, <laughs> called him to attention, told him in plans with the, the regulation, he would put polish on those boots and make them presentable. Otherwise, I would not let him have a new issued one, and he would sign a statement of charges and pay for his boots. So, and then lastly, I said, well, we are frigging sleeves up. And as he stood there, and started to roll his sleeves up. I went and sat down behind the desk anymore. And she sort of looked at me. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm done with it. He's just, you know, Tom Prairie rest, get him out of here, get him out of my sight. Well, four years later, I was uh, getting ready to fly the scouts out of Vineland, New Jersey. I was their platoon leader for like four months before I went to flight school. So we were flying them up to Fort Dix in the evening, nighttime. And got flying back on, it was on a Friday night, and flying back on Sunday. So I went up there for a plans meeting as a young captain. And there is this lieutenant. 
the same E6 I had threatened and they wanted to put out of the guard was now a lieutenant. <laughs> he did a 180 and got his act together. So. Yeah, right on. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I pissed a lot of people off. I've been known to do that. But that's I mean, sometimes it's required. So that's it. That's yeah, it. Sometimes that's needed, though, right? Like you got to. You know, be a little, be a little harder on folks, especially like you think like that guy at E six was probably, you know, I mean, was in twenty six he... years, I locked the heels of two people. Yeah, that's all. So, uh, and I take privilege and honor in saying that. You know, there's a lot of people been questioning some of the stuff that I did or how I did it. So, yeah. Now, when I got Delaware, and I don't want to talk bad about Delaware Guard, it's a good unit. Same thing in Arkansas. Aviation has a bad reputation of being a flying club, especially in the guard. And when I took over as an ops officer, that was really when I figured I could start making a change. My last AT in Delaware had a guy who was a Vietnam vet. This guy had gone through the ringer, too. He started out as a warrant, went to Vietnam, took a direct commission, and and then came back, didn't get picked up for major, and reverted back to a warrant. <laughs> He'd been up and down the round a couple times. He, my last AT when I was an ops officer, I was supposed to take command after that annual training, but I ended up moving to Arkansas. He was the instructor pilot for the night vision goggle guys, and he had flown so much. I mean, he was hardcore that as an ops officer, I had to tell the commander, I got to ground this guy for a night. You know, you can't let him fly tonight because he's, he's out of crew rest. Well, he got upset with me, cussed me out some and stuff. But then later on that afternoon, I find out, and the evaluators from first Cav saw it, and they didn't believe it. You got a W-4 standing at the dismount point down here with an M-60. Well, that was my IP. <laughs> <laughs> He wasn't flying. He figured he'd give the enlisted guys a break. So he went down there and pulled dismount guard duty for four hours. So, like I said, to get to that point, though, it takes time, especially when you're dealing with older guys sitting a ways. And especially when I was in the guard, because, like I said, you only got them one week in the month, two weeks in the summer, whatever. And it's just it gets hard to reshape people's attitude and motivation yeah. to get them to that. No, point. It really does. Yeah, so, that's true. So, Hey Andy, uh, you yeah. have an incredible memory. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so well, much. We just scraped the edge of it. Guys. Oh yeah. No, I, they, we, we can probably go on for hours or days. I'm sure. Uh, but you know, thank you for sharing the information that you share with us. Uh, you're the first person, first uh, person to pilot an aircraft uh, or a helicopter or any kind of flying anything on our show. So that's pretty cool. Uh, first person to talk any about flying anything. Yeah. First person to, to bring up or, you know, to, to have experienced, uh, you know, the Cold War Army. And you actually got to see the Army transition from the old school, almost Korean War era type things to you know, somewhat new stuff now or back then, back in, uh, back when you got out, but now things are even mm -hmm. more advanced. Oh uh, yeah. 
But I, I want to say thank you so much for coming on our show. It was uh, a great time. Uh, Kevin, you got anything? No, yeah, I was going to say, like, I don't know how you can remember all of these things. I mean, like, <clears throat> very specific, like, not just details, but, like, what, what I mean, what, what these, like, uh, aircrafts are called. Or, like, just, I mean, I guess, you you know, you did it for 26 years. So, of course, you're going to have all that. But, like, dang, that's, that's a lot. Well, but, uh, <clears throat> yeah. I went up north with my, uh, at Thanksgiving for my 40th class reunion and ran into the guy who was a lieutenant. That last year I was up there in Art in Delaware. He, uh, uh, I went up to his promotion party when he pinned general, brigadier general. He retired a major general last February. Dave Fleming, AKA Smurf, good guy. And like I said, I kind of shaped his career and kept him in line. He appreciated everything. And I, I, uh, it's been an honor to be on your guys podcast and i appreciate you asking me to come on here absolutely Any, anytime you guys you know want to hear more war stories i actually got some funny stuff that occurred when i was in the guard that i uh, well give you an example smurf told me don't print any of it until he retires so. <laughs> <laughs> all right so hey thank you so much for coming on cool we had so much fun um everyone if you are a fan of our show please like listen and subscribe and share the show with your friends kevin you got anything no yeah uncle andy uh thanks for coming on for real like that was uh that was really good to hear uh hear you talk about stuff um and uh a lot of stuff that i didn't even know so really appreciate it oh yeah thank you and please share